Greetings folk, my name is Nick Small Engel and today I'm going to be reading out of John Anspro. Please excuse the voice, it was read early in the morning, so it's a bit of a thick morning voice. God bless you and enjoy. I'm reading from the beginning of John Anspro's book, The Making of the Mind, about Martin Luther King. Because of its outstanding quality, I have selected this book as required reading in my course on the life and thought of Martin Luther King, Jr. This book is destined to establish the standard for all future research concerning the intellectual development of Dr. King. Professor Ansbro has anchored himself among the unquestioned authorities on the theistic, personalistic, idealism undergirding the fundamental philosophical and theological superstructure behind the civil and human rights struggle led by Dr. King. As the first professional philosopher to analyze the strategies and tactics of Dr. King's philosophy of non-violent resistance and to critique nearly 100 of his critics, he reveals the comprehensive internal consistency of King's thought and the grand vision of this 20th century ecumenical prophet. The entire book corrects many serious misinterpretations advanced by single perspective scholars and gives a more varied and in-depth analysis than those provided by previous critics. This clearly written treatise will undoubtedly become the official study documenting and appraising King's thinking. Its publication will determine the rise and fall of many who give careful attention to its content. Reverend Lawrence E. Carter, Dean of the Chapel Morehouse College. There are a number of other um, writers giving praise to the book, um, also available there. I'm going to read a quote by Martin Luther King here. We feel that we are the conscience of America. We are its troubled soul. We will continue to insist that right be done because both God's will and the heritage of our nation speak through our echoing demands. Martin Luther King Jr. was the conscience of his generation. A southerner, a black man, he gazed upon the great wall of segregation and saw that the power of love could bring it down. From the pain and exhaustion of his fight to free all people, from the bondage of separation and injustice, he wrung his eloquent statement of his dream of what America could be. He helped us overcome our ignorance of one another. He spoke out against a war he felt was unjust, as he had spoken out against the laws that were unfair. He made our nation stronger because he made it better. Somebody once said, this is the best possible world to create the best possible world.
in Sydney, Martin Luther King lived to create the best possible world. Honoured by kings, he continued to his last days to strive for a better world where the poorest and humblest among us could enjoy the fulfilment of the promises of our founding fathers. His life informed us, his dreams sustain us yet. It's powerful words. This is a citation of the posthumous award of the Presidential Medal of Freedom to Dr. King on July the 4th, 1977. Volunteers in the Birmingham movement signed a commitment card that read in part, I hereby pledge myself, my person and body to the non-violent movement. Therefore, I will keep the following Ten Commandments. Number one, meditate daily on the teachings and life of Jesus. Number two, remember always that the nonviolent movement in Birmingham seeks justice and reconciliation, not victory. A friend of mine said, um, it's not about being right, it's about reconciliation about being reconciled and I think that is exactly what Martin Luther King is saying here number three walk and talk in the manner of love for God is love number four pray daily to be used by God in order that all men might be free it's important to say that while any one of us is not free. None of us are free. Martin the King also said, we're all interwoven in this inescapable garment of destiny. Okay, back to the Birmingham Movement Commitment Card. Number five, sacrifice personal wishes in order that all men might be free. Number six, Observe with both friend and foe the ordinary rules of courtesy. Number seven, seek to perform regular service for others and for the world. Number eight, refrain from the violence of fist, tongue or heart. Number nine, strive to be in good spiritual and bodily health. Number 10, follow the direction of the movement and of the captain on a demonstration. And there's a list of a whole lot of books, probably most, if not all, by Martin Luther King himself. Okay, Ansborough writes, Acknowledgement is gratefully extended for the permission to quote from the following. Stride Toward Freedom, The Montgomery Story by Martin Luther King Jr. Copyright 1958. Strength to Love by Martin Luther King Jr. 1963. Why We Can't Wait by Martin Luther King in year 63. Where do we go from here? Chaos or community? Martin Luther King. 
1967. The Trumpet of Conscience by Martin Luther King Jr. 1967. A Comparison of the Conceptions of God in the Thinking of Paul. Uh, sorry, of Paul Tillich and Henry Nelson Veeman by Martin Luther King Jr. This was his PhD dissertation, 1955, Boston University. Copyright 1958 by Martin Luther King. And there's a number of other books listed here, including Agapa and Eros by Anders Neiger. Okay, I'm going to read uh, from the table of contents now. Preface. Page 8, Chapter 1, The Redemptive Power of Agape, Page 1. The Early Struggle with Nietzsche's Revaluation, Page 3. The Restoration of Faith in Love through Satyagraha, Page 7. Love as Power to Achieve Justice. Page 8, Eros, Philia, and Agape. Page 9, Nigran's view of love as self-sacrifice. Page 15, Davis's conception of the necessity of Agape. Page 18, De Wolf's comprehensive conception of Agape. Page 26, Ramsey's description of Christian love. Page 27, Thurman's Perception of the range of Christian love. Page 29. The three dimensions of a complete life. Page 34. The vision of humanity as a unity. Chapter 2. The dimensions of divine providence. That's page 37. Page 38, DeVolf's conception of the God who sustains his creatures. King's critique of Tillich and Veeman, page 60. Davis's conception of the God in control of history, page 63. Chapter 3, The Sacredness of Human Personality, page 71. The Appeal to Kant. Page 71. Brightman's Moral Laws. Page 76. I like that. Bright. The scripture says, Bright eyes gladden the heart. So Brightman has got some bright ideas about moral laws. Toward a realistic view of human nature. Page 87. The division within man. Page 90. The affirmation of the individual in existentialism. Page 92. Racism. The Denial of Human Personality, page 106. Chapter 4, The Moral Obligation to Resist Collective Evil, page 110. Thoreau's Non-Cooperation with an Evil System, page 110. Socrates' Defense of Civil Disobedience, page 104. St. Augustine's Limitations on Civil Disobedience, page 115. St. Thomas's Defense of Civil Disobedience, page 117. Dialectical Opposition for Total Truth 
and freedom, page 119. Gandhi's experiments with truth, page 128. Greg's conception of the power of nonviolence, page 146. Niebuhr's demand for resistance to collective evil. Page 151, the aggressive nature of collective evil. Page 160. Chapter 5, the social mission of the Christian church. Page 163. The requirements of the theology of the social gospel. Page 163. The challenge and limitations of communism. Page 183. The beloved community. The Ultimate Norm and Goal, page 187. Chapter 6, King's Critiques of Other Responses to Collective Evil, page 198. Booker T. Washington's Passive Acceptance, page 197. Dubois' Reliance on the Talented Tenth, chapter page 202. Garvey's Back to Africa Movement, page 204. The Black Power Movement, 211. The Black Muslim Gospel of Separatism, 220. Other Immoral Responses to Collective Evil, 224. Chapter 7. King's Reje Rejection of Violent Resistance, 231. The Immorality and Impracticality of Violence, 231. The Necessity of Exposing the Violence, violence of Racism, 240. The Immoral War in Vietnam, 250. Notes, 267. Index, 336. Wow, so there's lots of pages of, of notes. Chapter 1. The Redemptive Power of Agape Love Two months before his assassination, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. gave a sermon on death to his congregation in Atlanta. Sensing that the end of his own life was imminent, he alluded to his death and funeral. He told the congregation that whoever was to give his eulogy was not to refer to his Nobel Peace Prize to his 400 other awards or to the schools he had attended. No, whoever was to give the usually was to say that Martin Luther King Jr. tried to feed the hungry, clothe the naked, visit those in prison and love and serve humanity as a drum major for justice, peace and righteousness. Such a eulogy could not have been more appropriate. In the Montgomery boycott and in all his other crusades for social justice, he had instructed his followers in the necessity of a love for all men, agape. He had taught them that only in this way could they elevate their own souls and also creatively transform society. The early struggle with Nietzsche's revaluation. Although King became convinced that a love for all men must permeate every successful crusade of nonviolent resistance, he had to experience an intellectual and emotional crisis before he could reach the point where his belief proved to be the dominant force in his life. 
The crisis occurred when he was a student at Crozer Theological Seminary in Chester, Pennsylvania. There he read Friedrich Nietzsche's The Genealogy of Morals and the Will to Power, which contained vehement attacks on Christian ethics. In commenting later on this period of his development in Stride Toward Freedom, King explained that perhaps as a result of his study on Nietzsche's attack on the Hebraic Christian ethic as a glorification of weakness, he had almost despaired of the power of love for solving social problems. Nietzsche argued that we may define goodness as everything that heightens the feeling of power in man, the will to power, power itself, and that we may define as bad whatever is born of weakness. Nietzsche considered happiness to be the feeling that power is growing and that resistance is being overcome. He contended that Christianity, with its active pity for all the failures and all the weak, was more harmful than any vice since it had made an ideal of anything that contradicts the instinct of the strong for self-preservation. Pity deprives us of the strength that is the essence of life. Pity defends those who have been disinherited and condemned by life, and it gives life itself a gloomy aspect by the abundance of the failures of all kinds that it preserves. In the genealogy of morals, Nietzsche charged that Jews and Christians, driven by hatred and resentment against the noble, and the powerful had developed a slave ethic which extolled love and compassion for the poor, the powerless, the suffering, the sick, and the ugly as a substitute for the noble morality. This is really messed up thinking of Nietzsche, that is. The noble morality of the ancients which had promoted the robust ideals of power self-affirmation, health and beauty. In the will to power, he attacked the Christian duty to love all humanity as a glorification of weakness. He saw that this, he saw this love as favoring all the suffering, botched and degenerate, and as fostering the instincts of decadence by denying values such as pride, pathos of distance, great responsibility, exuberant spirits, Splendid animality, the instincts that rejoice in war and conquest, the deification of passion, anger, revenge, cunning, adventure, and knowledge. In place of these values, Christianity extolled the virtues of modesty, reverence, resignation, moderation, piety, pity, leniency, simplicity, and obedience. Nietzsche protested that while the human species demands the suppression of the weak, Christianity, through its emphasis on love, favors only the solidarity of the weak and reveals its hostility to all that is natural, including the drives of the body. He distinguished three elements in Christianity, the oppressed of all kinds, 
who struggle against the political nobility and its ideal, the mediocre of all kinds, who fight against those who are spiritually and physically privileged, and the discontented and diseased of all kinds who oppose the natural instinct of the happy and the sound. Confronted with this critique of the value of love for social good, King, while still a student at the seminary, had about concluded that Jesus' ethical message of turn the other cheek and love your enemies is effective only in conflicts among individuals, but is not useful in resolving conflicts among racial groups and nations. The next um, heading is the restoration of faith in love through Satyagraha. I'm reading in Modern is a King, uh, and John Ansprow's book, The Making of a Mind, page 84, second paragraph. All of the ideals which have hitherto entered into my life should daily be confronted by the standards of the highest insight I have yet been able to attain, writes Martin Luther King. This necessarily will mean that I shall have to revise or even reject today some of the standards which seemed final even as recently as four or five years ago. Ideal control is thus a process of never-ending growth. Hence, writes, an absolute concern for mere consistency for its own sake can only stifle the development of ideals. Brightman's previous emphasis on consistency was not meant to endorse a stagnant dogmatism. When King decided to, to denounce the Vietnam War, and when he expanded his conception of the role of civil disobedience and social change, he was not violating the logical law requiring consistency. He was exemplifying his conviction that ideal control is a process of endless growth. King would also find inspiration in Brightman's belief that devotion to ideals not only makes life worth living, but is the most potent force in human history. Did not King often claim that love is the most powerful force in the world? Brightman argued that we can appreciate the power of ideals if we focus on the fear of the possessors of power when they are compelled to confront those who promote these ideals. He pointed to the foes of Jesus and Socrates, who in their fear resorted to the death sentence to Napoleon who regarded national moral forces as the greatest enemies of his world empire and to a government that in wartime conducts fanatical persecution of pacifists. Those in power beset by fear use such extreme measures with dissidents because they recognize that a person dedicated to ideal Control only develops more energy in the face of ordinary obstacles. 
since King was convinced of the value of a legitimate self-love within the practice of agape, he would draw inspiration from Brightman's formulations of the law of individualism and the law of altruism. The former law states each person ought to realize in his own experience the maximum value of which he is capable in harmony with moral law. This law recognizes that society is made up of individuals and that each person has a moral obligation to himself as a total personality and therefore must have an interest in the development of value in his own experience. In demonstrating the truth of this law, Brightman argued that if all the actions of the individual were for the sake of the realization of value in others, then no individual would have control over the values realized in his own life. And this would violate the laws of autonomy, of ideal control, and of the best possible, and would destroy the motivation for continued social effort. Brightman based the law of individualism on the natural tendency in the individual toward a self-preservation and on the fact that the realization of value and its actual functioning in experience occur in the consciousness of individuals. While King would recognize the legitimacy of a certain individualism and a proper interest in self, he tended to give less emphasis than Brightman to this law of individualism, since he was convinced that agape may at times demand even the suspension of the law of self-preservation, so that through our self-sacrifice we can help create the beloved community. King believed that in such a sacrifice we do not abandon our self-respect and our own interest, but in fact we grow in self-esteem and self-fulfillment by our willingness to risk all to redeem each other. King could identify more with Brightman's law of altruism. Each person ought to respect all other persons as ends in themselves and as far as possible to cooperate with others in the production and enjoyment of shared values. Instead of conflicting with the law of individualism, the law of altruism requires each person to recognize the right of every other person to fulfill the obligation that the law of individualism imposes on him. The law of altruism may be seen as a generalization of the law of individualism because if each person has an obligation to respect himself as a realizer of value, then he ought to respect that other persons as realizers of value and as ends in themselves. If an individual does not obey the law of altruism, this implies that others need not treat him as a realizer of value. Brightman argued that the law of altruism implies that many values are possible only through deliberate cooperation. Without the respect from others that accrues to the individual as a result of the law of altruism, the individual is not able to pursue the axiological law and the laws of individualism of the most inclusive end 
or of the best possible. Brightman indicated that while Plato, Aristotle, Epicurus did not emphasize the virtue of benevolence, this virtue was central in Hebrew, Buddhistic, Confucian, and Christian thought. In his Nobel lecture, King also spoke of the perennial religious belief in the power of love. I am speaking of that force which all of the great religions have seen as the supreme unifying principle of life. Love is somehow the key that unlocks the door which leads to ultimate reality. This Hindu, Muslim, Christian, Jewish, Buddhist belief about ultimate reality is beautifully summed up in the first epistle of St. John. Let us love one another for love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God, and knoweth God. He that loveth not, knoweth not God, for God is love. If we love one another, God dwelleth in us, and his love is perfected in us.